So I'm finding it a little bit hard to believe that it's the last talk of the retreat already. Not sure what happened there. But still, I would like to touch in again to the pick up where I left off last night when I was briefly touching into what are known as the three universal characteristics of all experience. The fact that everything is changing, is impermanent, is unsatisfactory, is imperfect, and is doesn't have a fixed sense of self at the center of it, is impersonal. Or to use the Pali terms, anicca, dukkha, and anatta. And I mentioned how so much of the development of insight practice really rests on our ability to notice change, to notice impermanence, to be bring awareness to the arising and passing away of experiences on the micro and the macro level, and to stay steady with that change, not clinging to what's pleasant and not resisting what's unpleasant, which is what all of us have been practicing here over these last few days. Coming back to that phrase, we've been training in liberation through non-clinging. And in the individual meetings with every one of you, I've really seen and heard how much benefit you each have reaped from this strengthening the capacity to release habitual reactions and in their place to cultivate more skillful states of heart and mind. And I wanted to reflect that development back to you, partly, again, because of the mind's inherent negativity bias and our deep conditioning, often, to not let in the good. We don't recognize or acknowledge the progress that we are all making. So, especially at the end of a retreat, I like to invite everyone just to reflect on the long-term development of their practice and to see if there has, in fact, been a shift overall in the balance of pleasant and unpleasant mental states. Because no matter whether we started meditating a couple of years ago or several decades ago, I'm pretty confident that the general movement over that time is from decreasing struggle towards increasing ease. In other words, from clinging to release. And I do want to emphasize the word general because these shifts in our practice, just like the changing seasons or the weather might seem so incremental as to be invisible on a daily basis. But if we step back and look at the bigger picture, the overall arc of our practice every one of us can recognize significant changes in how we relate to ourselves, to each other, to the world. So that's broadly the theme of what I'd like to explore tonight, this natural arc of the development of the practice from dukkha or suffering to sukha, pleasantness, ease, wholeness, freedom. And I'm also pretty confident that you will have noticed that kind of arc, that trajectory, even over the course of this fairly short retreat. So if you think back to the first day, 
I'm guessing many of you were working with one or more of the hindrances, those afflictive mental states such as craving, aversion, dullness, anxiety, doubt, and so on, or perhaps at times that infamous multiple hindrance attack. But speaking with each of you in the individual meetings, it's clear that those afflictive states have lessened over these last few days. And at the same time, there's more space for the skillful qualities to emerge and to be strengthened. So I'd like to explore this movement from dukkha to sukha in a bit more detail, remembering that sukha is a Pali word for well-being and happiness. And in this context, I'm using the word sukha as shorthand for all kinds of skillful qualities of heart and mind. For example, the four Brahma-Vihara qualities that we touched into yesterday afternoon, kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. And there are many, many other skillful qualities that I could list, but I don't want to bog us down in too much detail at this point. What I want to point to is that skillful qualities, such as wisdom and the Brahma-Viharas, are are experienced as pleasant. That pleasantness might be quite subtle, but if we really pay attention, we can notice that there is a flavor of sukha, of well-being or happiness, alongside generosity or patience or equanimity or compassion. So tonight, I'd like to see if we can actually take some joy in what we're doing here together and this shift from dukkha to sukha. And just to acknowledge that for some people, even the word joy can feel like a stretch. And even though intellectually we might know that sukha or happiness, ease and freedom are the goal of this path, often there's some quite deep individual and societal conditioning that hinders us from accessing that sukha. At least that has been true in my own practice and often with many of the students that I've worked with around the world. So I wanted to share a few ways that I've seen this conditioning, these deep sankharas or mental formations, get in the way of this shift from dukkha to sukha. So the first is that inbuilt negativity bias that I've mentioned a few times, just the fact that biologically, as a species, we seem to be hardwired to pay more attention to what's unpleasant than to what's pleasant. Because what's unpleasant has the potential to threaten our lives. Whereas pleasant experiences are mostly benign and subtle, so they just don't grab our attention in quite the same way. So most of you are probably familiar with Rick Hansen's famous quote that our Brains are like Velcro for the unpleasant and Teflon for the pleasant. What's experienced as unpleasant tends to stick to our minds, to cling like Velcro, and what's pleasant tends to slide right off, like food from a non-stick frying pan. But then on top of this basic biological negativity bias, There's often a lot of deep social and cultural conditioning that reinforces it. 
For example, in dominant mainstream capitalist societies, there's a lot of emphasis on individualism and materialism. And so many of us experience quite intense pressure to have things, to get, to gain, to attain, to achieve, to succeed, and to become someone special, to stand out from the crowd. And because of this conditioning, it's common that people unconsciously turn their Dharma practice into a giant self-improvement project. If I can just get rid of this habit or become more like that person or get closer to my mythical notion of Nibbana, then I'll be okay. But when we bring that kind of striving mentality to practice, we don't see that the underlying motivation is actually aversion, which only compounds the suffering and creates more dukkha. And I wanted to highlight this because unless we can start to see through those really deep levels of default conditioning, they tend to drive us relentlessly and tend to trap us in very binary attitudes of good and bad and right and wrong and success and failure. And we bring those binary attitudes to our Dharma practice. So we're desperate to get it right and terrified of getting it wrong and worried about wasting our time and doing everything we can to look like a good meditator. So that's partly why I've been encouraging, instead of this binary attitude, to see if we can explore and enjoy and be willing to experiment and try things out, listen to our own experience and learn from it and, yes, even enjoy it instead of judging, assessing, criticizing or condemning it. So I'm very serious about the need for lightness here. But, and, this invitation to exploring and enjoying doesn't mean that we just don't have any goals whatsoever. Part of the skill of the practice is discerning between aspirations and expectations. So an aspiration, as I invited you on opening night to do, involves setting an intention to move towards a healthy and skillful goal. Whereas an expectation hardens into a more will-driven grasping after results or goals. And as you might have noticed in your own practice, in the quietness and stillness of the retreat, we can more easily connect with a deeper sense of purpose. And beautiful aspirations quite naturally bubble up into awareness. But what often happens next is the intellect latches on to that aspiration and then the ego tries to impose its will on it and the aspiration morphs into an expectation that then tor torments us with stories about not being good enough, feelings of inadequacy and so on. And because at times this distinction between aspiration and expectation can be quite subtle, in my own practice, I found it helpful to pay attention to a couple of areas that can reveal the difference between these two. One is to notice the amount and type of chatter in the mind. 
So if there are a lot of I-based thoughts creeping into my practice, that's often a sign that aspiration is starting to harden into expectation. So I might start to hear, I want this to happen. I don't want that to happen. I should be experiencing this. I shouldn't be experiencing that. When am I, why am I not experiencing X? When am I going to get to Y? Have I got to Z yet? And when we notice the proliferation of those kind of I-centered thoughts, then you might again use the strategy that I mentioned last night of just seeing if you can take out the personal pronouns and drop down to the underlying emotions and moods and mind states. So instead of, I want this to happen, it becomes more like, oh, wanting being known, resistance being known. Hmm. Self-judgment feels like this. Comparing mind is like this. Oh, moment of spaciousness is like this. So again, you might hear in that inner language, hopefully, that the I-based thoughts have a sense of tightening, constricting, and narrowing, whereas the I-free thoughts, hopefully you get a sense of more spaciousness and openness and actual possibility. The other area to pay attention to is the physical sensations in the body. And again, if we bring mindfulness to the body, when these I-based thoughts are proliferating, we can often recognize a subtle or maybe not so subtle tension, perhaps a slight clenching of the jaw or a tightening of the small muscles around the eyes as we focus or fixate on our goal or different kinds of contraction in the belly or the shoulders. And energetically, this tightening feels very different than we have than when we have an, just an open aspiration or an orientation towards sukha. So on one level, it's obvious that if we're getting all tense and tight in our quest to experience more ease and happiness, then we might perhaps not be going about it in the right way. So I'd like to share a quote from Gil Fransdell, who, again, is describing this process of distinguishing between aspiration and expectation. He says, The sensitivity and awareness that comes from mindfulness practice supports the discovery of our healthy desires and aspirations. Mindfulness not only helps us get in touch with our aspirations, but it helps prevent those aspirations from becoming craving. Even though what we might want is healthy and appropriate, if we're not careful, this desire can manifest as craving. Noticing the physical and mental tension, pressure and uneasiness that comes with craving makes it easier to distinguish aspiration from craving. And one way aspiration becomes craving is through expectation. At its best, aspiration has an openness to possibility without a need for anything to happen. This doesn't mean that we don't act on our aspirations, but we don't cling to their success. There is something satisfying and wonderful in a healthy aspiration that is not dependent on outcome. 
So you might have heard in that quote how there's a balance between setting a clear intention and then holding it lightly. We don't want to overshoot the mark. And yet again, because of our societal conditioning, perhaps for many people, one of the most challenging aspects of meditation practice is the apparent paradox that the deepest freedom comes from letting go and letting be and not from doing. But because of our conditioning to be doing, 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 it's easy to miss those more refined states of calm and quiet and tranquility. And we're so used to struggling with the hindrances and wrestling with the problems and getting caught in our narrative that when all of that does eventually quieten down, sometimes we think, well, nothing's happening. What do I do now? What's next? And metaphorically, we try to push the river instead of settling back and just refining our mindfulness so that we can stay steady with these more refined states of heart and mind. So as we start to orient more towards the third noble truth, the end of dukkha and the consequent experience of sukha, of ease, it can start to reveal many different layers of conditioning. And one very common and often unseen unseen assumption is that the practice is supposed to be hard work. It's supposed to be uncomfortable. It's supposed to be difficult and even painful. And if it's not those things, if it's neutral or maybe even pleasant, then we must be doing something wrong. We're not working hard enough. We're not going deep enough. We're not seeing clearly enough. And that underlying assumption often shows up as a unconscious resistance even to the idea that joy or enjoyment might be a necessary part of the practice. So just as an invitation during this talk to see if any views or beliefs might be coming up about what real Dharma practice is supposed to look like or feel like. There's another often unconscious attitude that affects our ability to experience ease. And that's that feeling happiness actually requires a certain openness, even vulnerability. Again, because of anicca, impermanence, happiness changes. And so it can be a surprising act of courage to actually open to ease and happiness and peace, knowing that eventually they will end. And so many of us have a sort of a preemptive stance of even feeling them in the first place to avoid feeling the loss when they change. So some of you might know of the work of Brene Brown. She's a research professor who spent about 16 years studying qualities like courage and vulnerability and empathy and shame. And during the course of her research, she found a strong link between the capacity to be vulnerable and the ability to feel joy. And she says, when we wake up every morning and armor up and say, I'm not going to let myself be hurt. I'm not going to let myself be seen. I'm not going to let myself be emotionally wrung out. I'm going to protect my vulnerability. 
When we lose our capacity for vulnerability, joy becomes foreboding. Because in those moments when we feel joy, the first thing we think is, "Uh uh-oh, you will not blindside me, vulnerability. I will beat you to the punch. I'm going to stand here and squander this incredible moment with my child or my partner or this incredible moment about my promotion. And I'm going to imagine the worst case scenario. That way, if it happens, it will hurt less. Which is why it's so ironic to me, she says, that people think that vulnerability is weakness, when really letting ourselves fully soften into feeling is one of the most courageous things we can do. So it's not surprising that some of us might have an unconscious fear of happiness and that we bring that with us into meditation practice. And unfortunately, this attitude is sometimes reinforced by the way the Buddha's teachings are presented. And while it's true that the Buddha did warn us over and over again to not get attached to sense pleasures, what isn't always brought forward so much is his instruction to cultivate skillful mental states instead of ease and happiness and peace, everything we've been doing here on this retreat. So in my own case, because I perhaps didn't listen to the teachings as carefully as I could or perhaps the way they were presented, I developed an unconscious belief that any type of pleasant experience was wrong or bad. And I was so worried about getting attached to enjoyment that for a while early on in my practice I didn't allow myself to feel any kind of pleasure at all. And I didn't recognize that I was actually afraid of it and that I'd unconsciously developed a form of wrong view. The wrong view that pleasant experiences lead automatically to attachment. And in defense against this, I sort of become attached to non-attachment. And I tried to disconnect from pleasant experiences and even felt guilty if I accidentally experienced any. Hopefully, most of you haven't been through that similar thing, but perhaps in a lighter form, you may have had an experience like that. And so you know for yourself that with that kind of attitude, practice becomes a grim chore, a duty, and it's not sustainable. It becomes dry or even painful. So although at that time I was vaguely aware that my practice was becoming more and more of a struggle, I tried to convince myself that I was just practicing right effort. So again, that's one of those key phrases we hear a lot in the Buddha's teachings. And again, because of my conditioning, when I heard the term right effort, I'd automatically think think that it meant blood, sweat, and tears. And because I was focusing only on the effort part, and I was completely missing the right part, the nuances of what the Buddha actually meant by right effort. So I'd like to just say a little bit about what the Buddha actually meant by right effort, how he actually defined it in the suttas, just to touch into it, because, again, I don't want to overwhelm you with yet another set of numbered lists. But as a framework, I think it can be quite helpful. So when the Buddha is asked to define right effort, he talks about it in terms of four distinct aspects. 
And the first aspect of effort is to prevent unwholesome mental states from coming up in the first place. So making the effort just to see if we can protect ourselves and not have those states come up to begin with. But the Buddha was also a realist and he knew that there will be times when in spite of our best efforts we do fall into some kind of unskillful state. So the second effort is to abandon any unwholesome mental states that have arisen. And the sequence of these four efforts is significant because the first two are about working with afflictive states. And when we can prevent and release afflictive states from coming up, then almost literally there's more room in the heart and mind for the skillful states to arise. So the third aspect of effort is to develop wholesome mental states. Those skillful mental qualities that I mentioned earlier, like the Brahma-viharas, like sukha, and well-being and happiness. And then with practice, as these come up, we learn how to stabilize them, to steady them, and to stay there for longer. So the fourth effort is to do exactly that, to maintain the skillful states that have arisen and to deepen them, to bring them to greater growth. So again, we see that natural progression that the effort to release unskillful mental states shifts the balance towards experiencing more of the skillful states. And so how might we support and encourage this development? So I've touched in briefly to the four Brahma-Vihara practices and Unfortunately, because of time constraints, we don't have the time to go into all of them in too much detail. But I would like to come back to the third one of these four qualities, which is mudita or appreciative joy, because the capacity to cultivate this can be a very powerful resource in attuning us to skillful mental states generally. So just as a quick reminder, when I ran through the four Brahma-viharas yesterday, you might remember that kindness or metta is the first of these four. And it's said that when this basic attitude of kindness or goodwill turns towards suffering, it flowers as compassion. And then on the other side of the scale, when kindness or goodwill turns towards what's going well, it flowers as mudita, or appreciative joy. And then when mudita and compassion are completely in balance, we get equanimity at the top, that heart-mind that is completely at ease, free from wanting and not wanting. And there's a short passage from the Tibetan Buddhist monk from the 14th century, Long, Longchen Rabjampa, who's describing this relationship between the four, he says, out of the soil of friendliness or metta grows the beautiful bloom of compassion, karuna. Watered with tears of joy, mudita, 
under the cool shade of the tree of equanimity, Upeka. So you might get just a little sense of the different flavors of these four qualities from that quote. So mudita is the heart's capacity to feel happiness and joy and gladness, usually with an emphasis on the capacity to feel gladness for someone else's happiness and good fortune. So it includes flavors of appreciation and gratitude too. And it can be a very uplifting and inspiring quality. So sometimes it's described as the love that celebrates. And it's an antidote to envy. It's not competitive. And if it slides into agitated excitement, then equanimity brings the heart back into balance. That's how the English teachers Caroline Jones and Paul Burroughs frame this particular Brahmavihara. So mudita then is the love that celebrates. And as I said, it's traditionally a celebration of other people's happiness and good fortune. And while at first that might seem counterintuitive, as we experiment with it, we start to discover that it does actually increase our own happiness as well. So again, uh, the Tibetan master Shantideva has a quote that really expresses this beautifully. He says, all the joy the world contains has come through wishing happiness for others. All the misery the world contains has come from wanting pleasure for oneself. So this capacity to celebrate other people's happiness brings us many benefits. When we are able to access this quality of mudita, our sense of separateness and lack diminishes. We can feel more connected to other people kinder and more generous because there's a feeling of abundance and these are all very skillful mental states that support the development of wisdom we can more easily understand the truth of interconnectedness and when we stop taking our own problems quite so personally we can recognize that all beings want to be happy just as we do and mudita can also be a powerful catalyst for the awakening factor of rapture or joy to arise. So in this way, it directly supports the development of insight. So how do we actually cultivate mudita as a meditation practice? Traditionally, it's taught similar to metta through silently reciting specific phrases that orient us to this state of joy. And we do it in relation to different categories of people, similar to how we do it with uh, metta. So some of the traditional phrases are just things like, may your happiness and joy continue. May your happiness never leave you. May your happiness continue to grow. And for myself, when I heard those kind of phrases, they didn't work so well for me. So I gave myself permission to change them a little bit and I'll say more about that in a moment just want to acknowledge again that for some people the word joy can feel like a stretch like it's just not part of our emotional repertoire or capacity so 
I'll use the word mudita untranslated, and you might put in whatever word feels more accessible for you. Perhaps gladness, or appreciation, or gratitude, or lightness, if not actual delight. Because mudita doesn't have to be some big ecstatic bliss state. It can be very light and fleeting and subtle. And one way that um, we can help to sort of kickstart it or access it is to consciously orient to aspects of our lives that we can appreciate in a very direct and immediate way. So that's what I invited you to do this afternoon, to practice noticing in the present moment any simple aspects of your experience that registered as pleasant without clinging to them, without resisting them, Simply noticing pleasant experiences at all of the six sense doors and allowing any natural response of appreciation just to be there. So thank you for engaging with that practice. I was inspired by the giant stack of papers that I got. And I thought just to share some of the fruits of what you did this afternoon, I'll read just a few examples. I tried to get at least one from each piece of paper. And as you listen to the list of what people came up with, you might just also listen to any response in your own heart and see if there might perhaps be some flicker of mudita there. So here are just a few of the many things that you appreciated this afternoon. The smell of clean, moist air. Taking a deep breath. A bud beginning to open on the sunflower. The water bowl for the birds. Watching magpie mama feeding its juvenile. The vibrant red of a parrot landing. Following the movement of a butterfly, droplets of water on a cobweb, the wave rings made by raindrops on a puddle, the sound of rain on the hood of my coat, the subtle fragrance of time by the sand paths. The feel and sound of walking on crunching gravel. A smile and a wave from the neighbors. The sight of keen yogis on a treasure hunt for pleasure. (laughs) So hopefully you got some flickers of mudita in there. And just to feel and see how it can bring a sense of ease and lightness and well-being. And then in the traditional form of mudita practice, we take that quality of appreciative joy and offer it to a sequence of different people. And traditionally, we start with someone we're close to who's currently enjoying good fortune. Then we move on to the benefactor, then a neutral person, then a so-called difficult person, And then finally, all beings. 
But there's one person missing from that category, that list of different people. Anybody notice? Self, yeah. And so when I started doing this practice and I read about it, I was told that traditionally we do not include ourselves in mudita practice. And I thought that was strange because everywhere else in the Buddha's teachings, the encouragement is to make no distinction between self and other. And it didn't make sense to me that we're supposed to avoid including ourselves with mudita, but definitely to include it with the other three Brahmaviharas. So I asked a Pali scholar what the word mudita actually means. And he said that originally it simply meant gladness simple gladness, and there wasn't any sense that it had to be for another. And I found out that the form of that mudita practice that I just described actually developed after the lifetime of the Buddha, quite a few centuries after his lifetime. So as far as we know, the way mudita was offered during the Buddha's lifetime was more of that radiating energy method that I talked about yesterday in relation to metta. And it comes from a sutta known as the suffusion of the divine abidings. And this is often chanted to evoke all four of the Brahma-Vihara practices. So this is the, there's a standard set of verses for each one, and this is the one for Mudita. I will abide pervading the all-encompassing world with a heart-mind imbued with gladness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility, and without ill will. So I will abide pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with gladness. And this sense of mudita being pervasive and encompassing the entire world starts from our own heart center. And if it's going to encompass the entire world, then it's going to encompass we ourselves. So in my own practice, I started getting interested in how to orient this gladness towards self-appreciation as an antidote to the kind of habitual self-judgment that so many of us uh, seem to be conditioned into. And as I was exploring all this, I found a set of teachings that the Buddha gave to a layman by the name of Mahanama. Some of you are familiar with this sutta where Mahanama, who apparently went to the Buddha and said, you know, you give all these teachings for monastics, but how about giving something that's suitable for a layman like me, who, quote, lives in a household that is dusty and crowded with children. So he was very much not a monk. And the Buddha said, okay. We literally say okay. He said, <laughs> contemplate six different things every day, Mahanama. And if you do this, he said he would develop the kind of rapturous joy that leads to profound samadhi, stability of mind, which in turn leads to clear seeing, insight, wisdom. And the six things that Mahanama was advised to contemplate every day were the good qualities of the Buddha, the good qualities of the Dharma, the good qualities of the Sangha. So basically the three jewels that we were talking about on opening night. And then the next two, he said, contemplate Mahanama's own generosity. 
and then contemplate his own good qualities, his own skillful conduct, his own virtues, and then lastly, the good qualities of the devas or angels. And what interested me most in this list of six was the instruction that he should practice recalling his own generosity and his own skillfulness. And when I first read this, I had a bit of a recoil, even at the idea of contemplating my own good qualities. And when I share this practice with students, often there's a similar response, almost of fear, because of that deep conditioning, again, around unworthiness and inadequacy. And for some people, even a sense that they deserve to suffer. Hence, uh, one of my teachers, Joseph Goldstein's observation that many Dharma students today get caught in a kind of psychological self-torture and are extremely hard on themselves. And again, apart from our own individual conditioning, this can really go against our cultural conditioning too. So I grew up in England and New Zealand, and in those countries there's a lot of social pressure to not blow your own trumpet. And we have sayings like, pride comes before a fall. And here in Australia we have the tall poppy syndrome, where anybody who stands out from the crowd gets their head lopped off. And in Japan, apparently, they have a saying that the nail that sticks out gets hammered flat. So it's not surprising we might have a fear of going anywhere near acknowledging our own strengths and good qualities, even to ourselves. And in fact, we can tend to disown our own achievements, our own skillful state. But as the Buddha pointed out to Mahanama, acknowledging our strengths can turn them into a resource, something that helps us develop confidence or trust in this path. So when I first read this instruction to Mahanama quite a few years ago now, I decided that I would try it on as a practice, partly because it just did seem so foreign and unnatural. And before I started actually doing it, I had this assumption that I'd better take care that it might make me inflated or conceited or something. But I actually found that the opposite was true. That when I felt an inner sense of connection to my own good qualities, I was better able to appreciate other people's good qualities too. I wasn't coming from a sense of lack. And in fact, I felt a sense of ease and kinship instead of the more usual comparing mind. And the more that I contemplated my own good qualities, the more I recognized that they didn't actually belong to me at all. That like everything else, they were arising due to conditions. Some of them were instilled in me from my parents, my teachers, my friends, the Buddha's teaching, my meditation practice. They were a conditioned phenomena, so I couldn't really take ownership of them but I could acknowledge that they existed. So we're not in that process denying that there are areas that may be not so skillful, but the invitation is to open more to the full spectrum, the full range of everything, all of these qualities all of us have inside us, rather than fixating on what's wrong or bad or needs improvement.
So the more we can open fully to both dukkha and sukha, the more we start to abide in the balance of the fourth Brahmavihara, which is equanimity. Again, the heart-mind that's completely at ease. And eventually, this culminates in the peace of Nibbāna, awakening or freedom. So I'd like to close with another quote from Gil Fronsdal on the power of aspiration and how this cultivating of sukha or happiness allows these aspirations to manifest quite naturally. He says, Buddhism recognizes many beautiful aspirations, including wishes of goodwill and kindness for others and the desire for happiness and other wholesome qualities of mind for ourselves. Central to Buddhist practice are the aspirations for freedom and for the alleviation of the suffering of others. However, Buddhism does not require us to desire either of these. When the heart is open and relaxed, these wishes often bubble up. Both aspirations can flow through us without egotism or craving. They can seem so natural that they appear impersonal. Just as water flows downhill, so the unimpeded heart flows towards freedom and service. The healthy desire for freedom and compassion can flow like a mighty river that finds its rest in reaching the vast ocean. So may we all experience the unimpeded heart of sukha, of ease and well-being and happiness, so that our lives might be a contribution to the welfare, the happiness and the freedom of all beings everywhere. May we know peace. So thank you for your attention. Let's just sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.